0: Hi everyone, Dr Sandro here. The episode you're about to listen to features two incredible social enterprises, Free to Feed and Cafe Sunshine and Salamati. Since we recorded this episode, the COVID-19 pandemic has had a major impact on their ability to operate, and like so many food businesses, now they've had to transform the way they work. Free to Feed is running its Brave Meals delivery service, featuring dishes from a bunch of their amazing migrant and refugee chefs and Cafe Sunshine and Salamati are selling packs of their delicious Iranian food to take away. Please check them out if you can, and if you want more info on COVID-19 and living through the pandemic, Dewi and I are also putting out a new season of In Good Health each week, so listen out for it. But for now, back to the podcast.
1: This podcast is made possible by the good people at Bupa. Bupa is a health and care company committed to helping more than 5 million Australians live longer, healthier and happier lives. To learn more about Boopa, jump online and check them out.
2: This is my culture. This dish, this plate is my culture. Food is culture.
1: In this podcast, we've talked about all the ways that food can affect our bodies, our minds and even the planet that we live on. But it can affect our spirit too. It can bring us closer to our neighbours, Or it can be that bridge that connects us to somewhere far away, to home, or maybe to something even less tangible, to who we are. Today, we're going to be hearing from some people who are using food to make those kinds of connections, and who are doing their bit to bring others up with them. Welcome to In Good Health, a podcast about the forces which push and pull us through the world, our bodies, the food we eat, and the way we live.
0: We'll look at food and how we can eat for better physical, mental, and social health, and the way our decisions at home can affect lives on the other side of the world. In this series, we're going to be talking to leading researchers, health specialists and everyday good humans. And we might even throw in a recipe or two. Mm. I'm Dr Sandro.
1: And I'm Daewi Cook.
0: It's not every day you land your dream job, but Loretta Bulletin did. A few years ago, she was working for a human rights organisation in The Hague on issues she was seriously passionate about. But then she walked away and in the process she created something else, something very, very special. Loretta, what happened?
3: Hi. Um, so, yeah, I, d- I did land, uh, land my dream job. Um, coming off the back of um, working in the humanitarian sector, I landed a job in The Hague, um, in the Netherlands. And, um...
0: Which is kind of like the mothership of, of human rights, right?
3: Yes exactly it's the um, what the spiritual home yeah. <laughs> of human rights but a different kind of human rights um, the human rights that you do mostly from your desk
2: yeah, right. <laughs> um, which is
3: really different to have you know the work that I was doing previously which is very much on the ground in the Middle East and um, wow. yeah, across the sort of immigration detention space um, mm. in Australia so on paper it looked like a really great opportunity um, but uh, I was a very new mum with just a, a six-month-old um, bub at the time and um, I found myself in um, in a workplace that was, um, despite being a, a gender justice organisation, it wasn't very friendly towards a new working mum. So mm. that in combination with the fact that I felt very removed from the kinds of work that I wanted to be doing meant that it didn't quite turn out how I how I expected it to.
0: And, and after working... You know, at the global level, all around the world, you found yourself somewhere very different, but you also found yourself focusing on food. Can you tell me a little bit about that journey, those next steps?
3: Yeah. So my background in work had been um, with refugees and people seeking asylum, more at a sort of broader community or psychosocial level, Mm. um, helping people to feel settled and find their place here in Australia and abroad. And I guess through that work, I was invited to so many fabulous community gatherings Mm. um, in which I had the privilege of um, sharing meals um, from all over the world. And and my clients would always bring me something to eat at every meeting (laughs) that I had. So the the theme of food um, was was interwoven through my work, but it wasn't until we launched Free to Feed that food became so such an important medium for, for advocacy.
0: So when you got back from The Hague, you're, you were full of ideas and full of energy, and you'd seen also um, all of these different cultures, families, communities around the world. And what you did next was truly amazing. You started an incredible organisation that I've been watching uh, grow and develop over the last few years, and one that's really captivated the essence of multicultural Melbourne and, and I think also Australia in many ways. Can you tell us a little bit about Free to Feed?
3: Yeah, so um, so free to feed is a social enterprise that empowers refugees and people seeking asylum through the delivery of shared food experiences. Mm. So yeah, back so in great. back in 2015, when I arrived home from Europe, I reconnected with. Um, the refugee, some of the members of the refugee communities that I had previously worked with mm. and particularly with some very good chefs <laughs> and started exploring the idea of what would it mean if we started shifting the dynamics instead of, um, you know, new arrivals being recipients of charity but what would it, what would it mean for them to really step up and um, lead us mm. um, and share their, their cuisine and their culture with us Um, And so I reconnected with at first some some Afghan, some young Afghan men and um, brought my friends and family together. And these young Afghan men um, taught us how to make their traditional curries and their flatbread um, and a charcoal barbecue. Mm. And um, during the the process of this feast, I found that everyone was so interested to learn about all of the um, ingredients and methods and stories that went into the food and less about the actual final product. Mm. Um, And so from this, I we started to explore what it would mean for... Other members of the refugee community to share their food through cooking classes. So we uh, borrowed a few cafes in Northcote in Melbourne after dark, and our second class was um, a man who had been in immigration detention for about a decade, um, who was looking for an, a new opportunity, but happened to make phenomenal curry that mm. his mum taught him um, as a child in his village in Sri Lanka. And so he led people through eight different recipes that night, and the smells were just gorgeous, and people were really opening up and having um, a beautiful dialogue and the food was phenomenal and we thought wow this there's some there's something in this let's let's see what we can do here
0: it's an amazing idea but it's also a really big idea did people get it straight away or did it take a while for your friends and family to understand what you were trying to achieve
3: the people in Melbourne just seemed to intuitively understand what we were trying to do. Mm. Um, from the first and second class, um, they sold out and people were wanting to know what was coming next. So um, intuitively, I felt like we, we really tapped into something within the community. You know, Melbournians love food, um, mm. but I also think they have a strong sense of social justice. And especially with all of the you know the noisy political landscape, people are just looking for a way to to do good and this was something that intuitively connected with people as um, something they could access.
0: Yeah, because it's more than just food, isn't it? It's not it's not just a cooking class. I mean it's really about sharing and celebrating community and culture and it's about, you know, empowering um, people who are just arriving in our country and really celebrating their rich culture and giving them an opportunity to share that with us. Can you tell us a little bit about some of the moments or reactions from mm. um both sides from, from, you know, those incredible refugees Mm -hmm. and individuals sharing their culture and being so generous but Mm -hmm. also – Melburnians attending?
3: So when I think about the work that we do, um, I think um, for for our participants, so people that are seeking asylum, um, food is a way, is something they know. Mm. So it's, um, you know, something that comes with so many uh, positive memories and research tells us that, you know, the sensory experience of cooking and the aromas and flavours actually connect with the Mm. memory centre in our brain. And um, so for some people that means sort of working through Through complex trauma, and for other people, it means reconnecting with really positive memories from from their childhood and from their community. So um, for them, it's very much a a platform to share their um, their culture, their story. Sometimes it means sharing a little bit about their journey to Mm -hmm. seek asylum in Australia. Um, and can be quite a healing and restorative program to be a part of from them. And then I guess for the, for the local community, it's a way to, you know, we're a social enterprise and our, um, our events are ticketed. So it's a way to um, spend money on a Saturday night in a very meaningful way. And then the experience they have is one in which I guess it broadens their understanding of um, the issues facing refugees. Mm-hmm. But also it's just a cultural experience. So it, it's kind of like travelling to Iran for, for a night. You know, the the smells, the, the soundtrack is picked by the instructor, all of the ingredients, you know, barberries and Persian rose petals and things like that. So it really is, you know, without all of you don't have to get on a plane. You just sort of um, walk in the door and just mm. deeply immerse yourself in um, a, a new culture. Um, and I think we like doing that as Australians. So, it, yeah, it satisfies people in that way.
0: What, what has been some of the challenges of, of starting a social enterprise, but also one that's working on such important but sometimes even divisive issues like uh, migration and multiculturalism.
3: Mm. (laughs) Oof, it's, <laughs> it, it is so complex on so many different um, so many different levels. Mm. Um, you know running, I, I think about it for, for my team. it's such an incredible team. They're not only working on a daily basis with people who have lived experience of trauma, mm. um, but working in a hospitality and events business is also in itself very stressful. So you can imagine these. It's just there's a lot of complexity. Um, And then we're always constantly trying to make sure that the work that we do really aligns with you know best practice in terms of refugee recovery and resettlement so it means that we're always tweaking things and trying to you know sometimes storytelling is powerful sometimes it's a, a tunnel back into um, into trauma so it's mm-hmm. so there's a lot of little pieces that we're constantly working on and trying to get better and making sure that we're yeah that we're really walking with people on their on their journey to resettlement and then that's without even touching on the broader political um, Mm. narrative. And my work in the humanitarian sector um, was um, one of the organisations I work with was the Australian Red Cross. And one of their principles is neutrality. Mm. And so um, I've really kept that. Um, I've tried to, and in Free to Feed, to just put politics aside and really focus on bringing people together without a particular political agenda. And it means that we get really good access. It means that people who might not necessarily be left-leaning or progressive in thinking, can come to one of our experiences and not feel alienated, but mm. then walk away with an appreciation of new cultures and multiculturalism. And then, you know, hopefully it's a grassroots movement. Hopefully this sort of changes the um, the politics, but later on.
0: Yeah, because I think one of the big challenges that we face in Australia is the politicisation of migration and multiculturalism. And I think what you're doing is really taking political nature out of it in a way or putting it aside for a moment and using food as a way to start the conversation Mm. in a much more inclusive way can you can you tell me a little bit about what food represents for you then in this context because it's it's you're achieving so much through something that's seemingly so so simple yeah
3: (laughs) yes it is um yeah it's food has been a way for us to select the people that we're going to work with one mm. of the prerequisites is that people have either a history of working in food in their home country or just a love of it mm. um, so what that looks like is sometimes we meet mothers who have been cooking for their families their whole lives but have never actually had a paid job for other people they're you know experienced entrepreneurs having run you know extensive catering companies in their home countries before conflict um, mm. came to their country so food is the um, is the way that we sort of narrow our focus and it's the medium and it's very useful for us because to exist we need to provide something for the local community to engage with and our feasts, our, our sit-down dinners and our classes are just a, a that um, and there's so many different ways that we can play with food and, mm. and talk about tradition, you know.
0: And you're, you're creating employment, you're creating community, you're, you're creating meaning, you're transferring culture, you're connecting Different parts of our community, but also different parts of the world. Who would have thought? Or, and and loads more through food and and through something that you've always clearly loved, but also is such a universal connector.
3: Yeah, I love it. I love it for its um, its power to stimulate conversations mm. um, and as a sort of insight into culture and to bring people together around the table literally is just magical because I like in our classes the learning goes both ways mm. um, and, and some classes that actually our experiences that we hold sometimes inside people's homes which is quite amazing for someone that's newly arrived to then get wow. an opportunity to be you know in a local home and for them it's like it's like a two-way culture shock mm. which can be quite positive or it's, it's really amazing.
0: I can't help but think of my own grandparents, you know, illiterate migrants arriving with nothing in the 30s and 40s to mm-hmm. Australia from Italy. And, and food was such a sense of shame for them because they arrived, uh, you know, it was a very different time in Australian history. Mm. Italian culture was not looked upon in the same way it is now. And they were really outsiders in the community. And food mm-hmm. in many ways epitomised how different they were, you know, it smelt different, it looked different. And my dad tells very vivid stories of being bullied at school because of the food that he had that wasn't a Vegemite sandwich. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and, and I just think it's so powerful now that you and others in our generation are using food in, in exactly the opposite way. It, we're actually seeing the, the power that's in food, mm. the way that it can connect, the way that it can you know, really transgress borders and cultures, and and unify a community mm-hmm. rather than dividing a community. Mm-hmm. It's so I powerful. Like,
3: I like that it all also um, food in many communities or many cultures that we work with is um, often seen as women's business.
0: Yeah, and right. so I was going to ask about that. Yeah, because yes. the, the links between food and gender are so strong in yeah. many parts of the world. Yeah, yeah. How, um, do, you, how do you approach that? Or? Mm,
3: so our program's inclusive to men and mm. women and as long as they're passionate about food. But um, naturally, I think because of the cultures that we work with, you know, we're about 90% um, uh, female participants. And most of the women that we work with haven't um, actually held employment. And they've never necessarily been valued for their role in cooking for their families. Um, And so it's about you know, suddenly they're hugely popular and valued and got something, you know, they can earn money from this skill that they've been um, honing their whole lives. And I also like it, um, particularly in cultures where um, women's rights are questionable, food can be a self-expression for women. And Mm. I think, again, without drawing on Persian cuisine again, um, one of my participants once told me that the rice is just so beautiful because women just spent, you know, so much of their time not being able to express themselves that they Mm. thought, then let's create this bejeweled queen Mm. rice with barberries and pistachios and saffron and and it's just stunning and it really is an expression of their femininity Mm. and it's so beautiful.
0: I mean, you... You clearly are a big thinker and, you know, you you have massive ambitions and you're already accomplishing so much. But, I mean, where's the future for Free to Feed and and how can we help you?
3: Thank you. Oh, that's a good question. Actually, this year um, I'm going to – now that I've got a really great team and um, phenomenal representation of cultures, it means that I get to um, sort of zoom out a little bit and think about what are we doing here, what can Mm. we do, what's our next steps – naturally, we would like to um, continue and grow the work that we're doing. You know, we've just started running our own creative program. Like last year, we did an International Women's Day dinner that Mm. was working with um, three powerful women from the Middle East sharing their stories um, Mm. over a meal. So we're really excited about the potential to um, explore so many different advocacy themes and cultural themes. Mm. Um, So really growing our own creative program this year. About six months ago, we ventured into the world of of hospitality and uh, shared dining and catering. And so that's a really massive opportunity there to work Mm -hmm. with people who speak less English. Um, And I'm just excited about seeing how what we've created in Melbourne um, if it might work in another place around Australia, so I've got my eyes on on Sydney, um, and going to be exploring that this year because the west of Sydney is so incredibly diverse, and I think there's some really strong potential. So, and as a social enterprise, I think the best way that people can engage with us is just by choosing us and I think what um, particularly our catering it's so competitive you know the quality of what our participants led by our head chef are are creating in the kitchen it rivals any commercial catering company so I guess I just challenge people to use their money to do good and that's the way the best way to support us
0: the best way we can help you is to choose you I love it (laughs) so can you tell us a little bit more about the organization I mean Tell us about who works for it, how big are you, where are you, where can we find you?
3: Yeah, so... we're, we've we've grown quite a lot um, in the number of people that we can support. So our employment program is now working with thirty five people, and that's only growing. And so to support that work and to deliver the um, the quality and the volume in food and um, in catering, we've got a pretty amazing kitchen team. Mm-hmm. Um, just a very talented executive chef that knows her position and and what you know how to um, to really nurture other people. Uh, food and skills within the kitchen. Um, and then I've got a really great team working across kind of community engagement and partnerships because it's a really complex ecosystem. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've got a few key roles that play very supportive uh, wellbeing roles to make sure that our program is nurturing and is helping people to reach their goals.
0: I just can't, I can't help but connect the work that you were doing. Uh, globally, back at the Hague, and the work that you're doing then at the national level around the world uh, in development, all of it focused on really developing communities, developing countries, developing economies, mm-hmm. um, and making those communities sustainable in many ways. Now you find yourself in a very different, using you know a very different approach, a very bottom-up approach. Mm-hmm. What do you reflect in terms of the power of food, or, or maybe? the need to be focusing more on food as an international development community.
3: Mm. So for about a decade, actually, before launching uh, Free to Feed was in the humanitarian space. So um, both at a government level, but also on the ground in terms of case management and kind of um, inclusion. Um, And it's brilliant work. It's great work. And these NGOs out there do really, you know, Played really important role in um, in assisting people, but I the two challenges that I wanted to explicitly focus on were how to make people feel less lonely and more included mm. in their communities, and how to address the uh, barriers to unemployment. Um, so we used food as a tool to be able to do this and to be able to help people to step into the employment space because we felt that once people are employed then they start to value themselves, have a sense of meaning, start to get a routine, really establish themselves and we, we, we noted that there there was a gap. There's some really powerful advocacy organisations on the political level um, and there's some great bigger NGOs but at that sort of grassroots level um, helping people to feel more included and less lonely, more connected, using food and social enterprise, so shifting from an NGO at an NGO service delivery model to a, um, a market-based enterprise model, so a social enterprise, we found that that was it's a very powerful, powerful mm-hmm. medium.
0: The, the number of refugees and asylum seekers around mm-hmm. the world is continuing to grow. We know that there are many different forces, including climate change, which are driving that increase, and it's going to be more of an issue in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, we as a country struggle to really come to terms with politically but also very often socially the challenge of stepping up to our responsibilities mm-hmm. uh, with regards to human rights and, mm-hmm. and asylum seekers. Do you think the model you've developed, which is a grassroots, it's a very local model, is it something that could be scaled Elsewhere in the world,
3: I do think I do think it could be scaled. I think um, the importance of what we've created, some of the the um, characteristics of the business side of what we do really give it that competitive edge to thrive and actually survive in mm. the market and that allows us to be quite agile and innovative and I think that's really important so I do think it can be scaled and I think we need to work harmoniously with some of the big NGOs we work with the Brotherhood of st Lawrence and community hubs in terms of receiving people into our program through their mm. um, their case management um, and employment services so there's a really good relationship there but I like the neutrality and the agility that that we get to have and being a bit cheeky on the side and getting to um, be quite dynamic in the kinds of events we have to do without numerous levels of bureaucracy. So that's really important. Um, having said that, I think in any metropolitan city that uh, refugees are arriving to, there's a huge opportunity where people like food and culture and good wine, then there's an excellent opportunity to um, to include refugees in um, being a part of the hospitality and events industry.
0: You have so much to be proud of in terms of what you've achieved and what your team has achieved and not just in the work that you did overseas, but, you know, back here making a real difference in Melbourne, free to feed. What would be your most proud moment and does it include food?
3: (laughs) I, I, you know, I've been asked this question before and I always find it, I think my proudest moment is a series of little tiny moments. Mm. And I think almost all of them include food. But seeing um, our participants completely transform, you know, I think about this, um, this older woman, so she's about 60 years old from Syria and escaped the war with her child um, and migrated to Australia through the refugee program. And she was so lonely, so lonely. She went to a little English program out in the northern suburbs, but had no community connections. And um, her English tutor referred her to to free to feed and just seeing her grow in confidence, um, she entered the workforce, which she didn't even think was going to be possible at her age um, with the amount of barriers, um, and she built so many trusting relationships from the kitchen um, and started to come out of her shell, share so many recipes, um, and around three months ago, she went through an intensive training period and came out the other side a, a cooking instructor, so a leader. And I just think about this person that was completely invisible, suddenly, you you know, she's, she's, um, she's in media, she's leading groups of people, she's commanding a whole group, she's sharing her culture, she's um, earning money for her family. And so I think those little moments like that are, um, yeah, just a, a very, very satisfying, very meaningful.
0: Amazing.
1: Two years before Loretta and her husband Daniel began Free to Feed, a man named Hamed Alahiri was stepping off a plane from Christmas Island and into a Melbourne summer. He'd been held in immigration detention after fleeing from Iran, arriving on Christmas Island via a boat from Indonesia. That was Hamed's voice you heard at the beginning of this episode.
2: Uh, it was hot, it was summer and I was sick. In, so before I take the plan... detention center I had a fever so I was very sick and I was taking medication so I remember when I came out from the plan I came it was in Melbourne Airport and then we had case worker from Red Cross who took us to the motel for six weeks when I came to Australia the only things I could say in English hello how are you that's all and then so it was very difficult for me to make connection with people, to just, you know, have a le- life here in Australia.
1: Hamad was on what's called a temporary protection visa, and he had no work rights. He'd been a cook in Tehran and even had his own restaurant there, but for his first two years in Australia, the only cooking he was able to do was for his family and fellow Iranians living in Melbourne. But then his status changed. He could finally work, so he started to look for a job
2: and i remember i made myself cv my resume with my experience working in kitchen and then i went to find a job i went to city i tried lots of restaurant different restaurant and cafe they asked me for reference from australia which i didn't have qualification i didn't have some of them they've been honest and they told me your english not enough was to work with you. And so I, at the end of the day, I didn't find any job. I found one job, only was a dishwasher job, every Friday and Saturday night in one restaurant for $8 per hours.
1: Hamed says that he approached 56 restaurants trying to find work. But he was a cook and he missed it. So instead of taking that job as a dishy for $8 an hour, he started volunteering in the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre's community kitchen... And after a year and a half there, he met a young couple who were looking to hire cooks for their new social enterprise, Free to Feed. Hamed led hundreds of Persian cooking classes with Free to Feed. And during his time there, he also started a catering business, Hamed's Persian Kitchen. Then after three years, he left to pursue another dream. And in 2019, he opened his own social enterprise, Cafe Sunshine and Salama Tea in Melbourne's Western Suburbs. He hires people from migrant and refugee backgrounds, giving them the chance to get that local experience needed to land a job in Melbourne's hospitality scene. His shop's in a small spot close to Sunshine Station and he's got a bright neon line on the window, casting a pink, purpley glow inside. He serves up all-day breakfasts with a twist. His plates are stuffed with Afghan bread from the local bakery and topped with like, Persian herbs and dips. But it's at night when Hamid's kitchen really opens up. Three nights a week, he serves a full Iranian dinner menu, drawing on everything that he's learned from his kitchen in Tehran to the cooking classes that he ran in Melbourne. For example, he knows now that Australians don't seem to like things as sour as Iranians do. So his fesunjun, a kind of chicken stew spiked with barberries, pomegranate and walnuts, is more sweet than it is back home. Uh, Apparently, though, we love eggplant and his smoky kashkobadamjoon, a humble eggplant dip mixed with whey and spices, is probably the most popular thing he cooks. He's got nine staff so far with plans for more and it's a lot of responsibility. His days are long, money's tight, but he's on a mission.
2: I told you it was very difficult for me to find a job here and because I didn't have reference, qualification, no English... But i had that cooking skill you know but people they don't know they don't trust you know it's it's very difficult to find your first job because you don't have reference i'm sure many people like me they try to find a job that at the end they didn't find the job then they give up and they go get help from Centerlink. And they stayed at home, they don't do anything, you know. And then they don't mix with community. There is no connection. That's why they don't learn English. That's why after like five years, six years, seven years, they will get depressed. I know many people that happened to them. I know like hundreds in just Melbourne. And then I decide to do something for those people. What I experience. what I like what I saw in the first two years, I was thinking maybe they sh- I should find a way to, for them so they don't feel that same things. And then we feeding people Iranian food mostly. <laughs> and I love it. So that's like a thing, a story.
1: <laughs> to see what's on the menu at Café Sunshine and Salamati, find them on Facebook or Instagram. For more information on the work of Free to Feed, go to freetofeed.org.au and we'll also include links in our show notes. Thanks for listening.
0: Hey team, Dr Sandro here. For more information and advice on any of the things we've chatted about today, make sure you also consult your own doctor. Check out my Twitter feed at Sandro De Mayo, for news and information from the world of good health. And if you've got any questions or feedback about what we've been discussing today on the podcast, use the hashtag InGoodHealth.
1: And please leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Tell your mates, tell your mum, it all helps. This episode was produced by me, Daewi Cook, and mixed by Jesse Bear.